Another way of thinking about portfolio of assets is basically you just bought a bunch of lottery tickets and you don't know which of those is going to pay off. And unlike real lottery tickets, these things all have a positive expected value because obviously you shouldn't really buy a bunch of lottery tickets. You may buy a few to have fun, but don't put all of your money in them. This is the only piece of investment advice I'm going to give because I'm not regulated to give investment advice, but I think it's pretty sane to not invest in lottery tickets. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Show. This is Lewis Giannis. I am the founder of WealthNet Investments. Today, we have an interesting topic, and I'm really excited about diving in, so let's get going. Welcome to the Market Call Podcast. This is Lewis Giannis again. We have Rob Carver on again for the second part of his interview. We split the interview up in two so that we could give you bite-sized chunks of our conversation. This conversation is very special because Rob breaks things down about how people can make better portfolios for themselves as an individual investor. Individual investors have many challenges that regard to how to do well, especially during times of inflation and when the markets are rough. And Rob brings some really great advice on how to build better portfolios. So listen in. I want to get a little bit into portfolio construction and diversification if we can. So maybe on a high level, like for individual investors, most people are in like a 60-40 type portfolio. We always talk about that 60-40, 60% stock, 40% bond. But with inflation lately rising, and we've all heard the story, you know, bond prices have been falling, equities could fall too because valuations are stretched. So that kind of changes the correlations between stocks and bonds going back to that positive relationship, which we normally see long term. And people are not really prepared for that, I think, although they're starting to see it happening now in front of their eyes. But who knows how long that could last or what that's going to look like. I'm not trying to make a prediction, but if... Yeah, I think about individual investors and we see individual investor portfolios and it's almost invariably like literally the correlation between all the portfolios we see is like 0.8 or up because everybody's doing the same thing. They're almost market cap weighted. They have a certain amount in U.S. and international stocks as a U.S. investor, a little bit of bonds. They tend to be hugging the indexes more and more because they own lots of securities and, and the performance is very homogenous, if you will. But we know if we add futures long and short, and a lot of people are constrained. That's, I think that's one of the biggest problems I think individual investors have is that they're constrained on the retirement accounts where they really can't go short. Most brokerage firms will not allow you to put futures in there, although some do, but most investors will not do that. And the complexities that we talked about have limited people to doing that. They don't understand futures. And when the market's going up, sometimes they're going flat or down and they just don't, you know. So I think... I guess my question for you is, what do you think the best way is for individual investors now to overcome this potential problem of not being able to make a reasonable absolute rate of return, given the constraints they're having in their retirement accounts, being long only and all that? If I could really answer this question, I'd probably be very rich because uh, <laughs> <laughs> to me, this is like the kind of big problem that all investors have at the moment. I don't think anyone has a really good solution for it, to be honest with you. So, I mean, just thinking in abstract theoretical terms for a minute, well, I, my brain struggles to come up with a more helpful and practical answer. <laughs> but I guess you can either try and let, assume, well, let, let's assume you can't go outside stocks and bonds. Okay. 
you want to have maximum diversification within that asset class or within those two asset classes. There isn't probably a lot to be gained from, yeah, let's actually just start at the highest level and say, okay, let's assume you can just trade stocks and bonds. What can you do? Okay, well, you can. one thing you can do is if there is, both of them go down, then we're screwed anyway, right? <laughs> but if we think we can predict the relative performance of stocks and bonds and things like momentum models do seem to do this reasonably well or have done in the past, then there is probably some additional improvement you can make to your portfolios by, for example, varying between, say, 90-10 and, I don't know, 80-20 in the other direction, you know, 20-80. So varying on stock and bond allocation. I would never go to 0-100, 100-0, because what you, to do that, you effectively are assuming that your forecast of relative returns is perfect, and it won't be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely won't be. But if your forecast is good, then you will potentially pick up. You won't necessarily make money, of course, because if they're both going down. But if you can stay out of the one that's going down the most, then obviously that's going to improve things by tilting away from, say, stocks if bonds are going to do relatively less badly, for example. So that's one thing you can do. Now, obviously, a lot of there's this idea out there where you potentially also rotate into a third asset, which is cash. I have looked at this and empirically that doesn't do as well as just switching between stocks and bonds. And the other thing is, given we're in an inflationary environment, I don't think cash is, is a kind of panacea really as, a, as an asset. So it's going to have negative real returns guaranteed. But I personally wouldn't introduce the extra complexity of that. I would just be pulling the handle between stocks and bonds. Hmm. The next thing we can do is say, well, can we improve what we're doing within stocks and bonds? You mentioned some classic phrases, you know, they're like, people hugging indexes and obviously the other thing that that you kind of implicitly mentioned was home bias right all investors have home bias and i'm not immune from this i'm pretty damn sure that my allocation to uk stocks is higher than yours lewis (laughs) i know for a fact your allocation to us stocks is also higher than it's higher than mine and yet we are both intelligent rational people who've (laughs) read the same books so, you know, what, what's going on there, right? It's I think of, a lot of people think about the currency, really. Well, it, well exactly, think- yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So currency risk is one thing. And my take on currency risk is actually I like currency risk because it makes actually makes portfolios of international stocks more uncorrelated and therefore more diversified. And therefore, in theory, at least, is good. Now, of course, part of the problem as a U.S. investor is that historically U.S. stocks have done much better than anything else. So any kind of back test that looks at historic returns is going to overweight the U.S. That's, if you like, the kind of quant home bias effect, if you will. Obviously, being relatively out of U.S. stocks over the last few years has been really bad for me until quite recently. And now it's looking relatively better mm-hmm. uk stocks again have done relatively better so but without a crystal ball I, you know the, the thing to say is well implicitly what you're saying is well i think that u.s stocks are going to outperform uk stocks implicitly what i'm saying is i think uk stocks are going to outperform u.s stocks well unless we have evidence for that or some kind of model that will predict that then we're both wrong and we should both be going towards a more neutral allocation and that neutral allocation is not market cap because you know msci world is whatever, I lose track, but 40, 50% US, something ridiculous like that. At least it was until recently. Whereas if you were to allocate by some other metric, like say, okay, let's pick all the stocks in the world with at least a billion dollars of market cap and allocate equally between those one over N, the US would probably still have a reasonable share, like probably, I don't know, 15%, maybe 20% off the top of my head, but there's no way it'd be 40, 50%. And if you think that you can't predict the returns of any of those companies and you assume a homogeneous correlation structure, then that theoretically is the optimal portfolio to have. So yeah, the next thing you can do is is try and 
diversify your portfolio away from home bias, make it less kind of market cap hugging. And the great thing is that we can do that quite easily with ETFs. ETFs for most countries, as a US investor, you can buy an ETF for, I know, Taiwan for like 15 basis points or something like that. So it's, it's, a, great, it's a great position to be in. And weirdly, in fact, where I used to work, we actually started buying ETFs because there were country equity indices whose futures we didn't have futures for, or the futures were very liquid, but the ETFs were fine. So we used to buy the ETFs instead. So it's not necessarily the case that you'd go futures first in that case. That's the second thing you could do. The third thing you can do, which is probably harder, is to think of a, an asset class that you can add to your bond and equities to, with it will go up. <laughs> and this is where it gets really difficult, right? So obviously, I'd advocate if you can buy a invest in a fund or I mean, this in Europe, so for example, that it's very hard to find ETFs that invest in, in, say, managed futures type strategies. If you can do that, great. It's not such a good idea to do the kind of second best to that, which is just to buy a long only quality ETF because you've got the so-called roll down effect. That means even if the price of oil goes up, you can actually lose money on an oil ETF because these things are constantly battling against the shape of the futures curve effectively. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, a thing, it's a tough one. The only thing I'd say is, and we certainly don't have a time for a full debate on the reasons why, is if you think crypto is an inflation hedge, then I think yeah. you had your head examining personally, <laughs> but you know. I agree Again, with we, that. We, I'm not here to talk about crypto, and I'm sure there are no, other no, people we'll, who can. <laughs> we we won't go into, into crypto. I promise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the, well, that's really good advice. I mean, it, just thinking more diversification. So, really, implementing something like that is more feasible using ETFs, not individual securities, which gives you more diversification. With that said, I don't know how much you have researched individual stock versus ETFs. That was going to be some of my line of questioning. If you have this gigantic correlation matrix of all the individual securities, it is, you can find more diversification there than the ETFs. I mean, like if you do the same thing in the ETFs, there's definitely less diversification there. So what is your thought about trading? Like what is that, that delineating line where you would say, I'm not going to trade individual stocks, but I'm going to go with ETFs? Would it just be always, it's better to go to ETFs? Or do you think there is a point where individual stocks with say a futures overlay or something or a fund or something like that would be a better way to go from a portfolio construction standpoint. Yeah, th this is something I look at in quite a lot of detail in my second book, Smart Portfolios. The things that are going into that are a couple of things. Firstly, costs. And I'm, what I'm really thinking about now is the kind of per trade cost. So if in the UK in particular, we typically pay eight pounds. So that's what, $11, $11 dollars roughly for each trade. And that's cheap. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> for a UK investor thinking about the ETFs versus individual stocks decision, it's well, actually, decision. it's an easy decision because yeah. you know what? To replicate or to do a good enough, let's say that I thought that buying one stock from each of the gig sectors, so buying 11 stocks in all, would give me an adequately diversified UK portfolio. And that I wasn't, that that was. So it's equal weighted, so it's not market cap weighted. So it's, it is one from each asset class. That's diversification. That's nice. So I need to buy 10 stocks, basically. Or I could, alternatively, I can buy a FTSE 100 ETF that's market cap weighted. Okay, it has more stocks in it, so it's more diversified. But on balance, I think the equal weighting overcomes the effect of the loss of diversification. It might be that I also have some way of picking those 10 stocks through valuation metrics or momentum or something like that. That, again, means I think I can do a little bit better than than just an 
equal weighted with fixed equal weights, for example. But the problem is I've got to buy 10 stocks and that's going to cost me 80 pounds in fixed commissions versus 10 pounds, sorry, 100 pounds versus 10 pounds in fixed commissions. So depending on the exact size of my portfolio and how long I intend to hold those things for, there's sort of a break-even point at which it no longer makes sense to buy the individual stocks. So if you're a UK investor with, say, I don't know, a thousand pounds, you know, what, $1,400, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense for you to buy individual stocks. Your best bet is just to buy, yeah, I mean, it's MSCI World, bang, done. You've got one thing in your portfolio, but it's it's everything, right? And you can do Vanguard 60-40, again, just buy, it was one, one ticket investment, bam. I'm not endorsing Vanguard, it's just, it's cheap and you know sure. there are other people that provide the same thing but i know i know for a fact that's a very cheap a cheap fund for sure but for a us investor who's facing much lower per ticket transaction costs or maybe even zero potentially depending on which broker you use then that becomes much less of an issue because if you take an extreme example i suppose you can trade with fixed costs of zero obviously you still got the bid ask but that's a percentage cost so it doesn't affect this particular decision if you've got fixed costs of zero, well, it costs the same to buy an S&P 500 ETF as it does to buy 500 US stocks. Okay, you've potentially got fractional issues mm-hmm. with 500 stocks, so yeah, that's potentially an issue. So, okay, that sort of feeds into the decision as well. But putting that to one side then, as an individual investor, well, I could buy 500 equal weighted S&P 500, or I could buy S&P 500 market cap weighted. If that's going to cost me the same, then again, if I don't believe that market cap is an indication of future performance, then equal weighted should outperform. Therefore, I should, I could do that thing of buying all the individual stocks. The other thing that comes into the equation is like, how bad is the ETF? <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> and I don't mean the ETF as in, but, but really how bad is the index? So the S&P and the 500 and the, and the FTSE 100, I mean, you know, they've got sector tilts. And, oh, you would say there's too much tech in the S&P. Or there's too much mining and resources in the FTSE. Mm-hmm. But have you ever been to Canada or Australia mm-hmm. or like Russia or anywhere like that where their headline indices are like all resources pretty much? Mm-hmm. So the, the, I, I looked at the, I think it was the Australian Stock Index and basically... It's banks and miners. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and you know, the banks are probably correlated to the miners because guess who they're lending money to, right? <laughs> so in a scenario like that, you will have a much bigger improvement from investing equally weighting in, say, the mm-hmm. top 100 Canadian stocks than in the or Australian index than investing in the ETF, which is basically just buying you effectively two positions, a banking stock and a mining stock. So it's not a straightforward decision. And, and in the book, I kind of make it as simple as I can. I say, basically, I just bring it down to a table with rows and columns. Rows are, what's your per ticket trading cost? Columns are, what's the amount of money you have? And then it just comes down to that straightforward decision. So roughly speaking, if you've got a big ticket trading cost and you've got a small amount of money, stick to ETFs. Yeah. And then you have that little problem of idiosyncratic risk of individual stocks. Where one, where, yeah, 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 <laughs> that but that's a problem. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. But that's why you need to have enough capital to buy enough individual stocks so that mm-hmm. you're benefiting from having a better weighting scheme than market cap, but you're not exposed to too much idiosyncratic risk. So, like I said, there's an absolute minimum for me personally. One stock in each gig sector, for example, would be the absolute minimum. So, if I couldn't buy 11 US stocks, I would buy the SPY ETF, even though I dislike it. But of course, the good thing is I don't have to buy a SPY, I can buy a value-weighted ETF. Mm-hmm. Again, though, it comes. there is then the, the fact that those normally come with higher fees. So another thing I like to do is say, well, how much extra return can I really generate? And 
you have to be fairly selective with these things because there are some kind of so-called smart beta that's what the title of the book smart portfolios came from right there are some so-called smart beta funds which are charging way too much really you're not really going to gain any extra from that so you're better off sticking to just the market cap weighted yeah. etf because they own so many securities they wind up hugging the index anyway closer and then you're paying a lot more for it and and over time you know the alpha that you're going to get for, for whatever that supposedly get may not offset that well actually uh, if I'm looking at the data, they haven't. <laughs> but, well, exactly. I, and I agree with you. When I've looked at the data, I've seen exactly the same thing. Yeah. So we do mostly individual stocks, but we have a larger account size. So if you have a million dollars, you could do, you can have a better weighting scheme, million plus with individual stocks. But then you have this problem with, I love the concept of using ETFs because it's so simple. So kind of like smaller accounts, we have programs that are ETF oriented for those reasons. But you mentioned market cap weighting as being, a, a, can be a disadvantage. I say that all the time because I'm a big believer that that is a disadvantage just because just both theoretically and there's times when you can't it's difficult to beat it because it's got this built in momentum effect. It's efficient. It's low cost. There's lots of reasons why you can't beat it. It's very difficult. But when you get in markets like we're in right now, that's kind of when you get to the risk adjustment phase, that's when I think that you can kind of add some value. And if you're putting non-diversified long short like futures on top of that, you've really can have an edge over the 60-40 that people, most people are just doing. But not everybody has access to that directly. So the fund makes a lot of sense for a lot of people to seek out funds that are doing these, call it trend following, managed futures. Most of managed futures I think tends to be trend following, but there's other things, a lot of other things that are in it. Now, I wanted to ask about the number of risk units, because that's always a, an issue when you're dealing with equities, because there's a lot more change going on in the equity world. You mentioned that there's a relatively fixed number of tradable futures contracts. They don't really trade. You don't worry about corn going out of business. So you, you have this issue of how many number of risk units should I have? What's that minimum number? Because that's a big part of it. What are your thoughts on that with individual stocks? And let's say you want to be globally diversified. What would you say? And I don't know if you've done any research on that or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I've not done any formal research on it. I should probably have said up front. I'm not really, although I have kind of been involved in a sort of equity market neutral fund that AHL ran and I've read the literature. I'm not like a stocks guy. So <laughs> take no, everything I say with a pinch of salt. That's fine. <laughs> I'm just um, curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so let's say that you think there are 50 countries in the world with stock markets that are worth investing in and you think that there are 10, 10 sectors, then using my rule of thumb, you should have at least 500 risk units, right? Now, if you put those 500 things in a correlation matrix, you'd probably find there were an awful lot of correlations that were very high, and you could probably get rid of quite a few of those without really affecting the theoretical diversification of your portfolio very much. But th this is kind of actually something that comes out of a lot of the thoughts and discussions I've had about, about trend following. I think we have to distinguish between the linear and the nonlinear world. So in the linear world, we have correlations. And in, in, in the linear correlation world, you get this effect where basically you have the classic kind of curve where as you add stocks to a portfolio, the standard deviation falls, the sharp ratio increases, but then it levels off. There's been acres of newsprint wasted with people saying you should have 20 stroke 25 stroke 50 stroke 10 stroke blah, stocks for a diversified portfolio. And this is the kind of the number we're arguing about, right? And that kind of flattening off occurs because correlations are linear and because amongst the thousands of stocks there are in the world, you do get to the point very quickly where the number of you're not really adding on things that are generally uncorrelated bets because everything's pretty much correlated 
to an extent, especially in stocks. Mm -hmm. But what that doesn't account for is outliers and nonlinear effects. So another way of thinking about portfolio of assets is basically you just bought a bunch of lottery tickets and you don't know which of those is going to pay off. And unlike real lottery tickets, these things all have a positive expected value because obviously you shouldn't really buy a bunch of lottery tickets. I mean, buy a few to have fun, but don't put all of your money in them. This is the only piece of investment advice I'm going to give because I'm not regulated to give investment advice. But I think it's pretty sane to not invest in lottery tickets. Probably about the same as crypto, I would say, in my opinion. But if you think conceptually about your portfolio of stocks being a bit like a whole bunch of lottery tickets with positive expected value, then what's the optimal number of lottery tickets to hold? Well, actually, it's all of them because you don't know which of the lottery tickets is going to be the winner. And you could say, well, I've invested in a correlated basket of lottery tickets. <laughs> but OK, yeah, well, that's fine. But correlation is a linear measure. And because lottery tickets are an asset that, that well, basically have something close to a binary payoff and extreme positive skew to get a technical for a second, they're about as nonlinear as it gets. OK. Now, stocks aren't exactly like that, but they're certainly not exactly like either the idealized world of linear correlations. So that means I'm always very wary of saying, well, yeah, if you if you own 500 stocks globally, then basically that's absolutely fine. Because, well, let's say you've sensibly bought 10 stocks in the US, you bought one tech stock, you may have been unlucky and bought the only tech stock in the US that in the last five years has done nothing, right? And missed out on the, the ones that have done really well. Mm -hmm. Or you might have bought Tesla and until recently that would have been the perfect stock to buy. That's the issue with specifying this number. And so in theory, buy all the stocks. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> you know, true. On the other hand, 500 is probably enough. And this is the same issue I have with futures because going back to the early discussion we had, if I picked 30 futures, well, theoretically, that's really good, right? It's, it's absolutely perfect. But it might be, or I say, well, you can trade, trade futures. You only need to trade one per asset <laughs> class. You only need to trade corn, for example. Well, what if this year corn is, doesn't do anything this year, but wheat goes insane? Even though their correlation is like 0.9, it just so happens that this year corn's done nothing, but wheat's gone completely insane. You're going to feel like an idiot, right? This is the problem with specifying the minimum number. It's a question that really only makes sense in a kind of linear world, uh, and that stocks are not in that world. If you worry about your investments, need to make complex financial decisions, or pay unnecessary taxes, a lack of proper financial planning and investing may already be costing you a great deal. When you are ready to turn your peace of wealth into peace of mind, go to wealthnetinvest.com and click on the schedule a call button to talk to us and get a free consultation today. I think potentially there's more that this is where a discretionary trader may have if your skilled can have an edge because then you can whittle down to maybe a higher probability that one of those is going to be the outlier event, the outliers that you're looking for. But that's always the hard thing when you're dealing with that. That makes total sense. I wanted to talk a little bit about how you blend strategies. You know, we're talking a little bit about portfolio construction. I know in one of your books, I think it's Systematic Trader, you kind of run models for, you know, the return stream. It looks like you're running return streams of the models and then correlating them and then kind of blending into, and then you use kind of handcrafting, which I love that word handcrafting. Can you explain a little bit about how you think about blending your portfolio strategies together? So, I mean, it's exactly the same problem, right? It's a portfolio construction problem. So you, you have a bunch of assets. So before we are talking about stocks or futures, but now the assets are themselves strategies. But there's no kind of theoretical difference between these two problems. There are some practical differences. So for example, the strategies are run with vol targeting, which means they all have the same expected risk. 
So I don't need to worry about the covariance matrix. I just need to worry about the correlation matrix, for example. Because these strategies are all amazing and brilliant and wonderful, and I designed them myself. None of them should have a, zero, a negative weight. They should all have a, a zero or positive weight, so that simplifies things. And the other thing is that the weights will add up to 100. Because although as a futures trader, I can use leverage, in practice, what I do is basically everything is targeted to achieve a certain risk. I allocate weights between zero and 100 to everything. And then there's a third step where I look at the risk of that portfolio and if necessary, apply more leverage to account for the fact that my return streams are correlated. Uh, uh, sorry, not perfectly correlated. But for the purposes of the actual allocation of weights, they just had to add up to 100. So it's a portfolio optimization problem, but one with constraints and simpler in, in some ways. There's no efficient frontier, for example, because the weights mm. all add up to 100 exactly. So I'm just picking the portfolio that has the best characteristics and those characteristics will be risk adjusted so it'll be best chart ratio or best compounded growth geometric return which actually if you can use any amount of leverage is the same as the best chart ratio basically i mean you can look at things like drawdown and stuff like that but i tend not to because the risk properties of my strategies are sufficiently nice that i can kind of ignore things like drawdown ratios and stuff like that so okay so i've got a, a bunch of things that are basically the trading strategies i do this in two ways one i combine different styles of trading together. So I combine different speeds of trend with carry, for example, and other types of those mean reversion, so on. And the other thing I do is combine instruments together. So I'll have a effectively a strategy that trades S&P, another strategy that trades US 10-year, another one that trades crude oil. And I'm basically, again, allocating capital, and it's effectively a risk weighting to each of those streams of return. So what things do I need to think about when making that decision? Well, I need to think about basically a standard deviation I don't have to worry about, I've got to think about correlation, so I'm maximal diversification. And I've got to think about net returns, returns after costs. Returns after costs, well, that's returns pre-cost plus costs or minus costs, depending on whether you put a minus or a plus sign in front of your costs. Now, if you actually look at the statistical significance of these different return streams in terms of pre-cost returns, you can't really distinguish between them. So for example, the US 10-year trading strategy that I run is better than the S&P 500 trading strategy that I run historically in the back test, but that improvement is not statistically significant. So there's no strong grounds or evidence that I should strongly favor the 10-year strategy over the S&P 500 strategy. On the other hand, if I look at the costs, then the S&P 500 is a much cheaper thing to trade than the US 10-year. So that has an influence potentially in there. Although in practice, because what I tend to do, as I've already mentioned, is trade things that are more expensive slower and vice versa, the costs kind of end up being about the same anyway. So in simple terms, really, the only thing that matters is diversification. That's really the only thing that has any serious impact on what my portfolio weights will be. So you have different parameters for different instruments, then it sounds like it's not. Only for the one purpose of trading expensive things slowly and the vice versa. So I don't, for example, like some people do say, okay, well, momentum doesn't work well in stocks, therefore we're not going to trade it in stocks. So we're going to trade it with a lower weight. That's true, by the way. Empirically, momentum doesn't work as well in stock index futures as it does in other asset classes. That absolutely is the case. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe that the evidence is strong enough that you should then do that because you're obviously down the road of overfitting potentially. So it's really driven by costs. The, yeah, the speed. the speed is driven entirely by the costs, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you're not making an assumption about a certain type of signal being better than another to some degree. No, ab absolutely yeah. not. No, because I mean, I'm not like kind of religious about this, but I'm happy to look at empirical evidence. And if I see ever see empirical evidence that, yes, 
100%, this type of signal is so much better for this instrument and this other signal that I would definitely not necessarily completely reallocate, but tilt towards that. But I've never seen that. I've never seen very strong statistical evidence. Obviously, you get different backtested returns, but they're never significantly different. So returning to the allocation decision, the, the idea behind handcrafting was basically to do, it's essentially a kind of very simple way of doing a top-down portfolio allocation. So what you do effectively is you group your assets. So for futures, I do that by asset class. For stocks, I do it by country or sector. And there are kind of automated ways of doing this. So you can use hierarchical clustering algorithms that will basically say, well, given your correlation matrix, which assets are most correlated with each other assets? And normally that goes along asset class lines, although not always. Sometimes you get some interesting surprises. And sometimes, as I've mentioned earlier, like crypto, it's not obvious. Is it an FX? Is it an equity? Is it like more like metal? It turns out it most seems to be mostly correlate, more correlated with metals than with, with the other things in there. So it seems to belong in that bucket. So it can, that can, be, it can be useful for assets that are a bit unusual as well to, to follow that approach. And obviously, if you're backtesting, you definitely want to have something that's automated. So while it's completely fine for me in my in constructing my live trading strategy to say, well, I'm going to just say, well, clearly these are the asset classes and they're clearly within that, you know, oh, okay, equity indices. Well, here's the US equity indices. Here's the European ones. Here's the Asian ones. Okay, now within those buckets, German, French, UK, and so on. With commodities, you've got so grains, uh, wets, and so on and so forth. So there's obvious classifications there. But in a back test, you want to have that automated because you don't want any kind of implicit bias creeping in or any forward-looking information creeping into that process. So yeah, it's just a simple top-down process. So you know, in simple terms, let's say you had six six assets. So you had four equities, two bonds. Say your equities were, I don't know, NASDAQ, Dow Jones, S&P, and Nikkei. And say your bonds were, I don't know, the US 10-year and the German 10-year, which is also called the Bund. The first thing you would do is say, well, I'm, I want my portfolio to be 50-50 asset classes, so half equities, half bonds. Okay. Then you've got two bonds, so those get 25% each. Then you look at your equities. You've got half, 50% of your money in equities. But you know what? Three out of those four things are US. So maybe you'd want to go... 50-50 that into US and, and Japan. So you've got 25% in the Nikkei, and then you've got 25% split between the S&P, the Dow Jones, and the NASDAQ. And uh, you know what? It's it's too hot for me to work out what 25 divided by 3 is, but whatever that number is. <laughs> That's kind of the basic idea, and there are complexities mm -hmm. in there involved around, for example, you wouldn't necessarily want to put a half of your US portfolio in Japan because those unless those three US assets were identically correlated, because they're not, you would actually put a bit more in the US reflecting the fact there's some natural diversification there within the US. So that's a complexity. And then there are complexities around things like how you actually measure the correlation matrix and whether you do things like shrinkage. And it's complicated enough that I you think- You could I get to... in the weeds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you could get in I mean, the I think, weeds. I mean, I've written books about it and, and probably written like five or six blog posts about it and the code's hundreds of lines long. So it's something I can't describe very easily, but- Yeah, that's something that- that you've, yeah. that your blog is really great. So that's something that oh, we'll put you. in the show notes to drive people there. So yeah, but in, in simple terms, it's top down grouping, and that's the best, the, the easiest, the best way of thinking about it. And it's just about maximizing diversification with that process. Sorry, makes sense. So just a little bit of a backtrack, going back to stocks for a minute. So in futures, it makes sense to vol to basically vol size, right? What about individual equities? Let's say we're putting together. Let's say we have a thirty stock portfolio in the U.S. and that's part of a constituent, and that's one element that's going in to your portfolio. 
would you vol size those 30 stocks given that when when the overall volatility of the market gets higher the correlations tend to approach one or would you not go through that brain damage I mean, I probably would because I just love vol targeting. Um, the, que the, question, the question is whether it's worth it, right? So as I said earlier, stocks are quite a nice asset class because if you look at the S&P 500, the difference between the highest and the lowest standard deviation is probably like two or maybe it's a bit higher than that. But the risk of a stock is not that different from the risk of another stock unless one of those stocks is just some crazy small cap liquid meme stock and the other ones like General Electric or something. So you don't get as much benefit from vault weighting as in, in stocks as in futures purely because the range of vols is tighter. Whereas, yeah, like Ethereum's got an analyzed standard deviation of like 100% a year. And I don't know, Euro dollar or US two years has got a standard deviation of like half a percent a year. And in fact, if you go back a year, it was even lower than that. So you're talking about a range of over 100 times in terms of standard mm -hmm. deviation. Yeah, you don't. This is why, actually, if you look at the academic literature, there's a lot of papers that have been written saying, well, you can't beat equal weighting. You know, you don't need any of this fancy CAPM or VOL adjusted or any of this stuff. Equal weighting is the best. And that's true, but that's only because the universe they're using to, to test that ass assertion is something like the S&P, where, yeah, actually, exactly. correlation structure is fairly nice, fairly homogenous. It's not like the Canadian equity index, the Australian equity index. It's not massively biased. The standard deviations are different, but not that different. Um, oh, if you put the Russell 3000, you'll get well, it, da exactly. daily vols of five and yeah. and then so you, maybe the yeah. average is one or well, yeah, it's going to yeah. be more than one. Yeah. But maybe. yeah. So as you move down the, to mid mid and small caps, then then obviously that, that then, yeah, vol in that case, vol targeting would make a lot more sense, definitely. We vol target, so that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, but it does make a difference. It definitely does. There's times when one of the things with equities that's interesting is that there's more of a relationship with volatility and, and the returns itself as markets are rising, vols typically going down and vice versa. Yeah. Which kind of helps works in your favor. So I think there's another dynamic there that, and that futures don't necessarily, I don't know if you've ever done any research on that at all with futures, whether or not, vol, you know, the actual movements up or down relative volatility like when commodities are going down is volatility generally higher than when they're going up i think it i think that may be true i've never actually looked at that but. i think i've done something similar no not exactly the same thing and yeah equity indices you see what you see in individual equities definitely uh, volatility so the vix you see the opposite which kind of makes sense because it is pretty much minus equity risk right but the other asset classes there's not really anything there that's statistically significant so no you don't i mean part of the problem is that we've got bias samples so if you take bonds for example Bonds have mostly gone up in my data set, which is since, well, about the same age as me, so like 50, 48 years, 50 years. So it's hard to say what bonds do when bonds go down because they've not gone down that often in the last 40, 50 years. So it's very hard to, to do that. For something like commodities where they've, they've kind of gone up and down equally, roughly equally, the data's obviously clearer, but the effects, yeah, it's not really there. You're not, you don't really see a strong volatility effect. So this, there's actually, this is actually related to theoretical result with equities, which is it's, it's basically a leverage effect because you can think of as an equity as a bit like a call option on the asset value of the firm. So that's why there's a stronger relationship to volatility and price for equities than for other asset classes. So it's not just a, like a curious empirical finding. There's actually a good reason why that happens in equities and only in equities. Yeah. So the diversification factor, if you will, or the in your model that you use, that is the one that's the most perplexing to me <laughs> because it, it just seems to be like, in my mind, I always split it up into two things. What is the statistical evidence? And then what is the logical evidence economically? 
and then I just try to make a judgment call. <laughs> so, but anyway, you've got some great books, and I encourage everybody to read these books. I like Systematic Trading. I just finished reading Leverage Trading. Really good book. If you don't understand how leverage works, some good stuff in there about what's linear, what's not linear, how sharp can be useful and not always a bad thing, things like that. So highly recommend it. I want to share your information out. When do you think that book's coming out, Advanced Futures Trading? Do you have any idea? Well, apparently, I'm having a conversation with my editor actually over over email now about this, in fact, exact subject. So I think, I think if you go on like Amazon, it says it's going to come out on like the 13th of April or something like that next year. Oh, so okay. April, April next year. So yeah. It takes a long time to do these things. So but you even have though, a new cover, though. The cover looks great. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the guy, the, the, I don't do the covers. So the guy that does the cover <laughs> is obviously much quicker at doing the cover than I am at writing like a 500-page a book full of very detailed research and equations and stuff. I'm not trying to like brag or something, but it's a fair amount of work guys into these things. Yeah, oh, so, I know. I know, definitely. Know. And of course, so there's a little paper shortage going on right now. So some of these books oh, are having a hard, yeah, <laughs> hard time getting out. I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping by April there'll be no paper shortage. So Keep your fingers crossed. Yeah. So Rob, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your time and taking it out of your day. Definitely learned a lot of great tips from you. So thank you for that. Is there somewhere you'd like us to send people to look at your stuff, your blog? I'll definitely put that on the show notes, but other than your amazing books. My main homepage is systematicmoney.org. And yeah, there's links there to my blog and my Twitter account. If you're into coding, there's also links to my trading system, which is actually open sourced GitHub. So yeah, that's kind of a good starting point from which you can look at all the random stuff. I find it very interesting that you share so much of this hard work that you're doing. I think that's really great, helping a lot of people. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of the guys I know who, who just put this much work in don't share it, and I appreciate the fact that you do share. Well, I'm extremely lucky to be in the position I'm in, which is that, well, part of it is also what I do. Like, I'm not, I'm not trading like high-frequency trading strategies that if I tell everyone about them, they'll stop working. So. Right. right. So that it helps that I'm in the domain that I'm in, but, but I'm also very lucky to be in a position where I can share this stuff and I don't need to kind of like bleed every last cent of monetizable value out of it. Out of it so I should also mention that you have quite a few interviews on Top Traders Unplugged. And if yeah. anybody wants to hear more about Rob's, what he's been up to or will be up to, you might tune into that as well. Thank you very much for that. Thank you, Rob. Have Thank a great you very one. much. We had a Appreciate great conversation. It. Thank you. Cheers. For the latest episode of the Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please leave us a five star review and comments. Information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. 